Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. I think many times when people summarize or when they look at Christianity, they sort of have a mindset that it's just a religion of regulations, that God's in a distant God, he's not close. No, I'm not saying these things are true, but I'm saying that when people look at us uh, from a distance, this is one of the claims that individuals make about Christianity. And our catechism is doing something that I think is, is very helpful in terms of teaching us about prayer and going through the Lord's Prayer that, that we can somewhat take for granted. Uh, I think many times people can look at other religions like Buddhism with meditation and say, see, there's a way of getting to know the one or, or the God. However, that God's not really defined and you don't really know him. But what our catechism is teaching us and driving home is that God is not some distant, irrelevant being who's aloof and uncaring about his people. He's not a God that we're unable to talk to or unable to reach. But the catechism wants us to understand the significance of who God is and who we are. That he is our heavenly father. As we heard last time from James that uh, we have that personal request. We may struggle through this age and not know uh, how to get through this world always and, and the best way to conduct ourselves in every circumstance. And what does James say? Ask God for wisdom. He's a giver of wisdom. And so on the one hand, it, it seems so obvious. But on the other hand, it's that very uh, stern reminder and command that we draw near to God. Well, this week, as we look at the object of prayer, and we think about prayer, the Catechism reminds us that not only is God our Father, but He's our Heavenly Father. And the Catechism sees these two things as being very important. And so why are these two concepts so important in terms of our prayer and in terms of our knowing of God? And so we'll see first, knowing our Father, and secondly, knowing His Majesty. And so let's begin by knowing our Father. Well, question 120 drives home comfort and humility in terms of the reality of who God is. Uh, there's comfort in that we know that God is our all-knowing Father. Uh, he is the one who reveals himself in his word by Father. And so it's important that we define God as God reveals himself. It's a very important thing to, to remember. Uh, because many times when we have problems with God or don't appreciate who God is, it's because we've redefined God and not really studied what he has revealed to us and what he has made known to us. Now there's another thing the Catechism reminds us in terms of our humiliation. That we have to humble ourselves before God and have that childlike faith. Uh, this is where we understand we are children of the living God. Now, there's a book by uh, uh, 
Eric Metaxas titled Socrates in the City, where he had a series of lectures in New York City. And one of the lectures, and I'm not saying that necessarily the guy who gives the lecture is right on every point, or I'm giving this glowing endorsement to him, but he gives an, an interesting take. His name is Paul Vitz, and he tries to consider uh, psychology and Christianity, and I don't know if I necessarily come down every place where he comes down, but whatever the case, this lecture, he pursued something rather fascinating. And in this lecture, he talks about the nature of fatherhood and what we see with thinkers. Uh, so he goes through Sigmund Freud, and Freud is one who sees religion as basically a, a psychological problem, that anyone who has religion has a psychological problem. Freud goes on to say that nothing is more common than for a young man to lose faith in God when he loses respect for his father. Now, Sigmund Freud, if you're familiar with his teaching, he is a self-conscious uh, atheist. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in religion. And he certainly sees religion as being a psychological problem. Well, Witz points out that if you look at Freud's life and what he's seen with his father, that radically impacted how he viewed God. He goes through a series of other philosophers. I won't bore you with all the details, but it is a lot of interesting connections that he draws between atheists, people who deny God, and their view of their father, and how their view of their father impacted how they viewed God and redefined him. And so I call this to your attention because it drives home what the catechism is trying to teach us. That we can think that we are so principled, so well thought out, so well schooled in our thought, as many of these philosophers would claim, oh no, I'm well schooled, I've read these guys, and I've read these guys, and what I've laid out is carefully thought out. And, and the point of, of Witz's lecture is maybe it's not as well thought out as we think. There's things that can influence us, influence our thinking and our views of God that we're not aware have crept into our own minds. And so this is where it's important, where the catechism reminds us that childlike reverence, that childlike awe, that we're continually looking up to our Heavenly Father and continually reforming our ideas of Him, understanding that there's things in this life that may reshape what we think of God and formulate Him in a way that's not consistent with who He is. So again, it's not a problem with God, it's a problem with us. And that's what the catechism is driving home. So when we talk about this childlike faith and we think about the reality of this, we go and we turn to, to what does it mean that God has become our Father, right? This is something else that question 120 is trying to drive home. It's something we have to recognize that we come to this relationship and this relationship this interaction with God because we have been redeemed. That Christ has redeemed us. This is what the Catechism wants us to understand in terms of gratitude. That is by God's condescending mercy, we have new life. It's not because we've done anything. It's not because we're worthy of anything. It's because God, by His mercy, has given us life. So when we start having these ideas of God creep into our minds, uh, wherever they may come from, whatever we may be going through, we have to come back to this reality. We have been redeemed in Christ. 
The Father has chosen us. And we need to continually reshape our own mindset consistently with who God is. And so what is Christ then fundamentally teaching us? We're going to skip down uh, to Luke 12, basically looking at verses 30 to 34 uh, for this. When we consider this, we have Christ presented in Luke's gospel as the last or second Adam. And so you have Matthew taking his genealogy back to Abraham. Luke takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam. So it's important for Luke to see Christ as that new Adam who establishes and confirms God's promises. So as he enters history, he's the one who's coming to the weak, he's coming to the lowly. Uh, we see this in the Song of Mary, as many draw a parallel between the Song of Mary, Song of Moses, in terms of those themes of the weak being exalted, the exalted being humbled, and Christ being the one who does this. So it's important to, to understand that as a background here. That it's God coming to exalt his people who are humbled, who are needy, who are sinful because of Adam's fall. And so when we understand this right it's a new perspective of who God is, a proper perspective that he is sovereign, he is perfect. We are those who need redemption and he very much loves us and cares for us as his children. He has redeemed us in Christ. And so as we've been redeemed... We have Luke, who's very concerned with the gospel going out to the Gentiles. So you think of Luke and Acts working together, where Luke is setting the historic precedent of Christ, the second Adam, uh, coming to fulfill and confirm God's promises. You have the book of Acts dealing with how the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, right? So it's starting in the Jewish epicenter of Jerusalem, the holy city, and going out to the ends of the earth where the Gentiles, the lowly, the unworthy, receive the very gospel of Christ and the blessings of Christ. But as we have Christ coming to us and, and reminding us of who we are, we have this exhortation for us not to be anxious, that the Father is the one who knows our needs, He's the one who tells us not to worry because he knows what we need. But he exhorts us in a rather sort of veiled way. But if you understand Christ as, as rabbi, you know, meaning that understanding of Christ trying to make us dig within ourselves and, and really just meditate upon the truths of the gospel, Christ gives us the assurance that, that we don't need to be anxious because God's going to care for us. And he tells us where to set our directive, where, where to set our focus. Seek his kingdom. Now we hear this and we say, well, what, what does that mean? Well, the kingdom, as we hear in Luke's gospel, we, we kind of go through this. We see the setting of this. We think of Luke 1, verse 33, where Christ is the one who will reign over Jacob's house. And there is, no, and there is the, the reality of the kingdom. It's not going to end. It's... It's the confirmation of these promises. Uh, the contrast of where we have the kingdom that is preached, 4 verse 43, uh, contrasted to the kingdoms of the world. And so here we see the kingdoms of the world, the kings of the, of the world worrying about certain things. Christ talking about the kingdom going forth. Luke 13, parables of the kingdom revealing this. We see the kingdom of God eventually being fulfilled. 
and how the Lord establishes his kingdom uh, in his resurrection, Luke 22. So this kingdom is a kingdom that is preached. It is the gospel message. The kingdom is established in Christ Jesus. With the coming of Christ, the kingdom arrives. And in this establishment, we have life. So what Christ is telling us to do is to pursue our Lord, pursue our Redeemer. And then as we keep our focus on our Redeemer, we, we have this, this orientation to, to the heavenly reality, a consciousness that, that we're pilgrims, we're sojourners through this earth and our lives are secured in Christ. But this is also where the, the book of Acts is important. Because when we look at the kingdom in Acts, this also goes forward. The very last verse of Acts, after Luke tells us that it goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, we have the Apostle Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, um, the one who, who doesn't like Gentiles. He's rather racist prior to his conversion. He, he wouldn't like us. He wouldn't want to dine with us. But there we have the promise and the assurance as the promise of Acts is that the gospel will go out we have at the very last verse of Acts, we have the Apostle Paul proclaiming the kingdom under house arrest and recounting his proclamation of the kingdom as it's going out to the ends of the earth, where you see the transforming power not only by the kingdom of God going out to the nations, but even as, uh, I'd argue, one of his most productive or active apostles, the Apostle Paul, who has written more than the other apostles, has been on a lot of uh, missions, uh, spreading the gospel out to the world, that this apostle who would have been racist against the Gentiles celebrates the reality of his call. is to take the gospel, to take the kingdom to the ends of the earth. So when we understand this truth, and, and we put this in the paradigm of Luke and Acts, and understand the intention of this kingdom being universal, in the sense that it's not limited just to the Israelites, but it goes to the, the nations. Not saying every single individual is going to be saved, but universal in the sense that it goes beyond the Jewish people. So in terms of, of this gospel and this pursuing of, of the priorities, we have this reminder that we seek the kingdom of God. So this seeking is an actual pursuit. It's a consciousness. Uh, it's where you have a goal, you, you have a desire, and you set your, your focus, your orientation on that goal and that desire. So the reminder is, as we have our desire uh, to live in the kingdom, to live out the gospel, uh, there is going to be true life in that. Now when we hear that, we say, well then, what's, what's the encouragement in this? Uh, it sounds like all we do is just press forward in Christ and, and we just kind of pull away from society. Uh, we, we have no physical needs that are met. Well, that would be ripping this verse out of context, wouldn't it? Because in verse 30, it gives us the assurance that our Father already knows what we need. You know, this, this again is where if we have a bad view of God and, and, and as a Father, uh, we'll just assume that the Father doesn't really care about providing for us. But that's not what Christ is revealing to us about our Father. He's reminding us, this is a Father who's created you. Uh, this is a Father who, who's actually engineered us, if you will. He, he knows 
what it takes for us to have life and to get through each day. And this is a father who, who truly cares for us. And so our father knows us and he knows what we need. So this is something when we wrestle with the providence of God in particular circumstances, we, we understand the father knows what we need. He will get us through those particular times, whatever times they may be, times of want, times of struggle, uh, times of blessing. He will see us through those times in his providential care. And so Christ is saying, well, then how do we orient ourselves? Well, we orient ourselves by continually focusing on Christ, focus on the kingdom, desire to conform to him. And as we conform to him, we will have our needs met. He will provide for us. He will care for us. He knows what we need. And so when, when you think about the context here, it means that God is not only the engineer who's created us, but he's also aware of us individually, isn't he? That, that's what Christ is telling us in verse 30. He knows what we need. The Father's good pleasure is to provide for us. He knows everything we need. He will give us those very things. And so Christ is saying, don't worry about getting through tomorrow when you just have to get through today. Because your Heavenly Father is not some aloof individual who's uncaring and indifferent. Uh, your Father is the one who wants you to get through this age when you have a proper view of God. Well, this is where we go on. Because it's Nice to know we have a father who has a desire to provide, but we need to know that he has a power to provide, right? I mean, it's, it's great that he wants to. He, he may have a wonderful desire, but, but how do we know that he's powerful enough to do what he desires and wants to do, that he can really make it happen? This is where the catechism wants us to understand that we know the majesty of God. He's not just father, but he's our father in heaven. And so he wants, the, the catechism reminds us that we don't have a view of God with, with earthly eyes, kind of what we were talking about in the previous point, that, that we let the things of this age influence how we view God, and, and that we don't really view God as God reveals himself in his word, that, that we need to continually go back and understand that there's things in our lives uh, that might uh, influence us in a way that we're not viewing God properly. Uh, this is very much why the Pharisees miss Christ, isn't it? They have a definition of the Messiah. They've defined him. They've set the boundaries for the Messiah. They see Christ walking on this earth, and they say, well, you don't fit in our box. This isn't how we have defined the Messiah. And so it's not that we have a problem. It's that you have a problem. When in reality, it's the Pharisees who truly need to repent of their own view and their understanding of what the Messiah looks like and truly needed to sit at the feet of our Lord. And so that's an example of how this can be a reality of it. But the Catechism goes on by reminding us that we understand as God is in heaven, we don't have this earthly skewed view, but that we also understand that we expect, when you think about that language, expect everything from his fatherly hand. This is pretty strong language, isn't it? That, that we truly believe that, that God is going to give us everything we need. He, he will provide. He will use means. He, he will get us through uh, each day. 
You know, our, our temptation, and the commentator points out in this text that one of the great sins we have in Western society is self-reliance, and that's probably true. Uh, that it's so easy for us to rely on our own selves and our own uh, skills and our own abilities that we don't really understand that it's God who's continually working and providing for us. That's certainly something to, to think about in terms of who we are as the Lord's people. And that's what, what Christ is driving home. That we expect, we understand that Christ and the catechism is reminding us it's the Father who dwells in heaven who cares for us. And we might say, well then, what do we expect from the hand of God? Well, the catechism wants us to understand is it summarizing scripture, everything for the body and soul. So often when, when we think about Christianity, we can say, well, certainly we can understand the Lord uh, wanting us to put off sin, our Lord giving us grace in a time of need, our Lord providing a way out of temptation. We, we understand those spiritual things and we expect them. But we don't always expect uh, from our own foolish perspective that God's going to provide for our physical needs. And the catechism is saying we really should expect both things, shouldn't we? If God is our Heavenly Father, if He's majestic and He's sovereign, we should expect the reality that the Lord is going to provide for us everything we need to get through each day of our lives, that we live our lives under the sun. We will live out the days he has numbered for us with the provisions and intentions that he has for us. That's what the catechism is teaching us. But is this really what Christ is saying? When we go back to this text and, and we put these verses in the context, notice how Christ, as he commands us not to be anxious or to worry, he reminds us of the creation. And he moves from a lesser to the greater. So you have the assurance of clothing with the flowers of the field, painting the, the hills. Even Solomon's not dressed in his beauty. Uh, the food, you think of the birds, you think of the, the different things in this creation. And yet the Lord sees to it that they get through each day that they need. Uh, we have all the animals receive their needs. And so you, you start thinking about God's providence, this creation, how he cares for this world. And what Christ is saying is if the Lord cares about these minute details, right, these, these little birds that we probably don't think a whole lot about, uh, these things that can maybe be pests for us, and yet, yet the Lord cares for them, provides for them. Christ is saying, these are mere things we can take for granted and not always be conscious of them. And yet God knows all the details of their reality. You think of Job. And you think about the absurdity where he points out to Job with the ostrich, right? The silly ostrich that lays an egg, the egg hatches, and the mother runs away and could care less about the young. And the Lord says, well, who do you think cares for that young one? Who do you think makes sure that that young ostrich grows up even though uh, the mother is, is uncaring and runs away. Well, the Lord's like, I take care of that. And so Christ's point is that when you start thinking about this reality, if he's sending his son to redeem us, do you think we're a second thought? That, that somehow, 
you know, God's up in heaven and goes, oh, I better make sure they got food. I don't know if I fed my pet. Kind of like a, a child that gets a new animal. And one of the requirements is that the child has to feed the animal and clean up after the animal and all those things. And then as a parent, sometimes you step in and, and you take care of it. But it's because the child sort of had an absent-minded moment. So often we can think of God as our father having these absent-minded moments. But the reality is Christ is saying God doesn't have those moments. So Christ is saying, really think about who God is in terms of his heavenly dwelling. He pays attention to all these details of, these, of this creation that we don't always pay attention to. He knows all those details. How much more is he going to care for the people he has sent his son to redeem? So now when Christ gives this command, don't worry about tomorrow. It's not something that's just a command. In other words, where Christ is just beating us over the head. I mean, it certainly is a command. But it's understanding the context of this command where he's saying, don't be anxious about your life. Don't, don't, don't worry about all those minute details that we tend to worry about. It's so saying your father has it covered. As he's mapped out our days and he knows exactly how we're going to get into heaven, our time of death, he knows exactly when our last breath is going to be. He knows exactly how that's going to happen. He's the one who's shepherding us through all those days, right up until the very last moment. Christ is saying, trust your Father. His majesty in heaven, his heavenly city, he's built this city to share with us and, and to establish us in his presence forever. And so Christ is saying, you, you don't think the Father can get you through this age and do this very reality? When you think about the Lord and his protection and his provision, you think about how the Lord comes to Abram. And when he reveals himself to Abram, see this, this summary is not just Christ summarizing the provision of, of God. This is inviting us to think about who God is. And when the Lord calls Abram and he, he makes the official covenant of grace with him, what, what does he say? Abram, I'm your shield and defender. Think about that promise. It means that in our defensive actions, the Lord's the one who defends us, right? He's a shield. So if something comes at us, he's in front of us, shielding us. The one who defends us, he's the one who's going on our behalf. He's the one who's doing the attack. He's the one who's seeing to it that we will get through this age. And so when Christ is saying this, this isn't some promise that's new. It's a reminder of that Genesis 15 covenant that the Lord is a shield and defender, the one who cares, provides, leads. Abraham himself doesn't always believe this. He struggles as we all do. Christ knows we struggle with it. You think of Psalm 23, where the Lord says what? We will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, this isn't a very happy picture, is it? I mean, the valley of shadow and death, you start thinking about those creepy things when you're a kid, scared of the dark, and you get in those moments where every little flicker of light is, is some nasty thing that whatever it is in your imagination is going to gobble you up or harm you, right? Well, that's a, a reality of this shadow of death, that there really are people there that want to destroy you in the midst of war, but the Lord leads his people through there. You think about Psalm 23 saying that I, I will prepare a table in the midst of your enemies. <laughs> I mean, if you really let that sink in and, and meditate on that concept, 
If you're in the midst of your enemies and you're walking through okay, your inclination is, I think we'll just get to the other side and then maybe where it's safe, we'll sit down and eat. But, but I'm not going to sit here in the midst of these people who want to kill me and eat here. This doesn't seem wise. But what's the promise of the psalm? God's more sovereign than those enemies. So sovereign that, that he can prepare the table and provide for you, care for you, and protect you. So when Christ tells us not to be anxious, this isn't something where, where Christ is just coming to us, you know, oblivious to who we are. He knows who we are. He gives us this command because what do we do? We worry about tomorrow. We're anxious. What is my future? What does this look like? How am I going to get through this? Christ is saying, wait a minute. Let's put this in perspective and think about the reality of what you have. A sovereign God who has created you, redeemed you, provides for you, shepherds you, has shown a precedent of caring for his people, even in foreign lands, caring for them in the wilderness and not turning his back to them. He is not a God who is aloof. This is our concept. This is our worry. This is how we cast God potentially. But Christ is saying he is a personal God who's walking with you. But there's something else that Christ says where he invites us to think about this promise. Because he tells us for life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Now, on the one hand, if you're honest and you hear that and you say, but if I don't eat food, I'm going to starve to death and die. If I'm in the middle of winter and I don't have clothing, I'm going to freeze to death and die if I'm outside. If it's the heat of the summer and I don't have protection from the sun, I'm going to get heat stroke and die, Right? So, so you, you hear that in a superficial level, and it's an invitation for us to think, well, what do you mean by that? Of course we need food. Of course we need clothing. We, we need cover. But he tells us that life is more than food. So what does Christ mean by this? Well, this is the invitation for us to think about the context of this parable of the rich fool. Uh, this is not to say that it's necessarily wrong to plan. It's not saying that it's necessarily wrong uh, to work. It's not saying it's necessarily wrong to build. What's the fundamental problem that we see here? Well, as this rich man uh, prepares and as he has his plan, we find in verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The Lord immediately rebuts us. He says, well, you fool, who's going to have all this stuff? You've worked to have all this stuff, and what is it going to do for you? See, there's no thought in his mind about God. There's, there's no thought like, wow, the, the Lord's been gracious. Praise God. How can I use this for his benefit? How can I use this to bring glory to him? What am I supposed to do with this, right? These are sort of the things that, that we're called to ask of ourselves. And that's what Christ is saying here. To understand that we can think that life is just getting through a day. 
We can fall into a trap of thinking life is just having enough food to get through a day or have enough clothing in our plan. But when Christ tells us, as we covered, seek first his kingdom, is having a conscious mindset set on God, set on our Father, pursuing him, and understanding that the Father will provide. Things will fall into place. And that's not saying we just sit around, we wait for God to nudge us. I mean, obviously we go about our days, but we're doing it conducting ourselves in his boundaries. We're doing it desiring to glorify him. We're we're doing it in his wisdom. We're, We're praying to him, as James says, ask for wisdom. You don't know what to do? Ask for wisdom. Uh, The Lord has a way of of reminding us, prodding us. I'm sure we can think back in our lives of different lessons that God has taught us in his providence, different ways in which God has opened doors and granted the desires of our hearts. Maybe at one point it's been denied, and at another point uh, the Lord opens up the opportunity when we're ready to receive that opportunity. And that's what Christ is saying. Trust that as we live our lives before the face of God, he's leading and caring. This is where I go back and I think of Job. Where you think about Job as a man who's very well off, has an overabundance of things. One chapter, they're taken away. Another chapter, they're doubled. And so you see how the Lord can turn one situation. Job at the beginning thinks he knows God, and again, there's There's really nothing you find in the beginning of Job where where you say this man's piety is one where he's uh, trying to push the boundaries of God's grace and mercy. Uh, Certainly it seems he truly does try to live a good, honorable life before the Lord. But yet you find throughout the book how Job has his own self-reliance, his own self-righteousness, his own expectation that God is a care for him. And at the end of the book, what does he come to learn? Now I really know you. In other words, he's he's gone through this difficult time by the test of Satan to discover what? The Lord's purpose is bigger than Job's. And that's what Christ is inviting us to understand. That we truly get lost in in a positive sense in, in, in God's providence. That as we live our lives, we trust that the Lord is leading us and guiding us. When it seems nothing's going to work out, we have to trust that the Lord has a way. When everything's going well, we got to be careful not to be self-reliant and say, look at what my hands have done. And so you have these different ways of understanding things. But when Christ reminds us, seek first the Lord's kingdom. Understand that life is more than just material comforts. Life is truly finding life in Christ. Now, when we really think about his providence, God oversupplies and provides for us more than what we really need. We can see that throughout Scripture with his saints. But that's the reminder of what Christ has for us. Think about how the Lord has cared for his people throughout the ages. So it's not just a command, do not be anxious and you're sinful and you're wicked. Christ is commanding us. I'm not denying that. And it is sinful for us to be overly consumed and anxious about things. This is true. But what does Christ remind us of? He reminds us not to focus on our anxiety or our anxiousness, 
but to focus on our Heavenly Father and what we have in Christ, the redemption that is ours, the faithfulness of our God, the care and provision of our Lord. And so it's a reminder for us to understand, yes, we, we confess that as sin before God, no doubt, but we also proceed in the comfort and assurance that our Heavenly Father is one who walks with us. If we're those who doubt that reality, this is where we need to once again bring those convictions and those thoughts before the altar of God and reshape who we, what we think of God and to once again have the proper view of him from his word. And so why is it so important then to know our Heavenly Father? Well, we have to know that our Father in Heaven isn't just a Father who desires to provide, right? I mean, it's, it's a wonderful desire. We, we can have lots of desires to do a lot of wonderful things. The issue is, do we have the power to do those things to, uh, to fulfill our desires? Do we have the ability? Do we have the strength? Do we have the opportunity, right? So we can have wonderful desires, but we may not have the ability to fulfill those desires. When we have the proper view of our Heavenly Father, we understand that not only does He desire to redeem, not only does He desire to shepherd us and lead us, not only does He desire to bring us into His rest and to shape us and mold us to be the people He wants us to be, but he has a heavenly majesty and glory to do it because he is God. This is where Christ wants us to be in awe of our heavenly father. He is our glorious heavenly father who has come near to us in Christ, taking away our sins. And so it's that reminder and exhortation to take the, the views of God that are inconsistent with what God has revealed in his word and to reshape our mindset, and to truly come before our Heavenly Father with that childlike confidence and faith, understanding who He is as our gracious Redeemer, a God who is leading us, shaping us, and molding us to be the people He wants us to be, bringing us into His heavenly kingdom solely by His grace and His mercy. Let us then proceed pursuing his kingdom on his terms for his glory out of gratitude, knowing that in Christ Jesus, everything that is offensive about us has been taken away and let us proceed in desiring to conform to his glorious heavenly will as we sojourn under the sun. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.